0: The withering of American exceptionalism, the rise of so-called populism, the mainstreaming of conspiracy fantasies, the discrediting of political institutions, these are among the disturbing political-cultural trends that have moved into the foreground in the post-9-11 era. Today, we'll take a look at these trends and the philosophic ideas behind them. Welcome to the New Ideal Podcast. I'm Ilan Giorno, and with me is Ankar Gate. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Alan. So I wanted to start by talking about connecting some of these pieces together with 9-11. So we're a few days out of the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And when we were talking about having this podcast, one of the suggestions that you had for the focus here was to connect this, this epoch-making event, this really tur- significant turning point in our history Uh, with some of the very recent sort of developments we've seen uh, in the last few years, or at least they've come to the fore in the last few years. So uh, tell me a bit about how you think of 9-11 and what is the relationship, the causal relationship that you think would be worth exploring here?
1: I think of 9-11 as a turning point, and it could have been a turning point for something good, It turned out to be a turning point for something really bad, but we spent a lot of time focused on it at ARI in the aftermath of 9-11. Indeed, before we had talked a fair amount about the rise of political Islam in the Middle East and the attacks against America and the West that that was originating. But what 9-11 showed, I think, or what it should have showed is the Failure of our foreign policy and the failure more broadly of how our government and policymakers were thinking about the threats in the Middle East and how to think of America's role and what we should be doing. That we had this massive attack on US soil, I think to everybody, say, like, it, whatever we're doing, it can't be right we need to rethink and alter our course. And that's it. it was an opportunity to actually face the fact that we have failed and we failed because of our policies. That's not what happened. I mean, that's what we at ARI were arguing that this should have been foreseeable and it is a direct result of the failure of our policies to the extent that we even had a policy. And we can, we'll talk about that. Today, but the that's not the lesson that was learned, and the result was that it was a doubling down in a certain way on the failed policies, and that created enormous um, distrust. I think in the government and the American system, and so that's the sense in which it was it was obviously going to be a turning point. We could have turned towards something better, or it's gonna lead to something worse. But we're not gonna maintain a status quo after an event like that. And that's what I think happened. Unfortunately, it's a negative what happened. But that's why we focused so much on it at ARI because it was gonna be a turning point. And we were hoping that if enough people speak out, it will be a turning point to reform our policy for the better, not for the worse.
0: When we talk about the distrust or the lack of trust in institutions, I think the primary one is the government in its role uh, in its foreign policy role, protecting individual rights of Americans and then domestically. I think we want to get to other uh, kinds of institutions, but I think that it's I was looking at some polls that were being done this year with respect to people's views of the government, particularly agencies you can think of uh, in, the, in the world shadow of COVID, there's a lot of distrust of the government, particularly on scientific issues, there's a distrust of scientific leadership and elites. So I think there's a lot of things to unpack here. And part of, I think what we want to focus on is 9-11 as a inflection point, but it's not the only thing that's happened that has led to distrust. I think there are other things that are worth bringing out that are contributing factors, at least if not themselves significant events uh, so let's dive in to talk a bit about 9-11 and the perspective we took at the Institute and that we've maintained since then, I think, uh, in contrast with the, the prevailing views out there. So let me just sketch out some of the prevailing views that people have about what went wrong after 9-11. And I think some of this has a some truth to it, but I don't think it gets to the fundamentals. So here's the, the sort of things you'll find if you Watch a documentary on PBS, or so if you read sort of standard accounts in the main in, in major newspapers, looking back this coming week. So we went to Afghanistan because the Taliban had given Al Qaeda safe harbor; they were able to carry out the attacks of 9/11 and plan. And that mission then evolved into something else. It wasn't solely to eradicate the Islamists in Afghanistan. Then there was the distraction of Iraq. Why did we go to Iraq? Nobody quite knew. First, there was claims that Iraq was uh, developing weapons of mass destruction, then that changed a little bit when none were found, and then the the actual purpose of that war became, the declared purpose was to bring freedom to the Middle East with Iraq and Afghanistan as the first beacons of that crusade under the Bush administration. The, The standard account is, Iraq distracted us from the Good War, which is a, was which was Afghanistan, where we had a legitimate reason to go. Iraq became a nightmare because of the way we attempted to remove the former leadership, the Ba'ath Party. And then a lot of things went wrong with the rise of the insurgency. We didn't know what we were doing. And then this sort of piles on. And then there's other accounts of, of why we went in that are, I think, uh, more slanted in a certain way. They're not as... as uh, um, evidence-based, let's say, um, but but the basic view is it's a it's a, a cluster of different kinds of failures, including military failures, fails of intelligence, and I think a, a lot of what went wrong there is uh, on the surface at best, like in terms of understanding what then what really went on. So let's contrast that with what we were arguing at the Institute and how that stands in in relief to that. So how would you uh, sort of summarize for people just as context for getting into the conversation, how we approach this?
1: Yeah, you, you can talk some about like what, what we were arguing in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 in terms of what we need to do now. Let me just say of what we had been said saying and then that we reiterated after 9-11, which is, that you have to see the Middle East as the, you have a rise of political Islam with the, and especially with Iran, but also in Saudi Arabia. But Iran was the most militant of the regimes that had come to power. It was a new phenomenon in the Middle East. It has, it morphs from older phenomenon, phenomena, but it's a new phenomenon that you should Islam should rule should have total political power. And um, it's it, so, so it's a it's a form of totalitarianism, but not of the secular what people think of as secular like Nazis or fascism, but of a religious totalitarianism with the Islam, the unquestionable law. That and it was this is our ideal that we're implementing in Iran and that we want to export through the Middle East and we'll export it through soft means I mean so called soft means of money and so and by actual coercion violence arms and the that Iran viewed itself at war with America. Once it seized the embassy in 1979, that it was clear, to, or should have been clear, to policymakers that Iran views it itself as at war with America, seizing an embassy and masquerading um, uh, the 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 prisoners on TV day in day out in after they seized the embassy as a as a form of humiliation, humiliation I remember I was old enough to start watching the news when this happened and I did remember like the nightly news how depressing it was because here it it was obvious that they're thumbing their nose at America and the the American I was in Canada at the time but the American response just seemed um bewildered appeasing uncertain and from that moment on, uh, we were at war once I knew it, and we did not. And so that's what we were arguing, and it, that it, the ARI was arguing from its inception and uh, in in the early 80s. And then when you got to the level of Iran then threatening to execute uh, Western authors, Salman Rushdie, who was just recently unfortunately attacked and they they didn't succeed in killing him but they succeeded in uh wounding him that you could put a price on the head of an author for speak for writing of novel and our response is worse than impotent it was uh, our view is the whole way that we're thinking about what to do in the Middle East is completely wrong. It's not an issue of our tactics. It's not an issue of, if we just deployed the military in a slightly different way, we'd be able to do something better. It's the, our fundamental way that we were conceiving of it was completely wrong. And if we're not willing to admit that and to recheck that, rethink that and institute different principles and accept the fact that we're at war, um, that nothing we do will have any lasting positive effect. And so that once saw an escalation that culminated in 9-11. We thought, yeah, this is exactly what our policy is encouraging. Um, and you can read that in the what they wrote about America's a paper tiger, and it will collapse the moment it's threatened. And so- that's what we were conveying, and we were conveying it because of our basic policy. And until that changed, nothing good was gonna happen in the Middle East. And that's why one 9-11 happened, but why it was an opportunity to admit failure and to reverse course, but that's not what happened.
0: Yeah, it was not what happened. in fact, there, it's worth, for people who weren't alive at the time or don't remember that well, it's worth going back to, get some of the uh, firsthand accounts of reading some of the speeches that President Bush gave and early on in the aftermath and ongoing, I think it's important to get a a flavor of exactly the kind of attitude that was conveyed. There wasn't any serious reckoning. And even some years later when there was the 9-11 commission, which was exhaustive, I don't think they came close to really Analyzing the fundamental issues that came out and that would help understand what went wrong. It was too concrete bound. It was mistakes and errors at a level of operations as opposed to how do we actually think of the Middle East, as you were suggesting. And I think that one of the important points of contrast in what we were arguing compared to other people at the time is that in terms of what to do in response, and so our view wasn't here as a battle plan, we weren't giving military. To detail military strategy, but we were saying that here's how to think about the goals and how that should shape the military approach and how that is essentially a political philosophical question. What are your goals? What is the standard for success? And ultimately, what is the purpose here? And I think the fundamental purpose is to protect American freedom, protect the lives and individual rights of Americans from this foreign threat. Who is this threat? And I think that is a crucial part of the story that we want to unpack here because. If you understand the collapse of trust in institutions in America, an important place to look is in the way in which both the Bush administration and a lot of intellectuals looked at this question of who is the enemy. So there was a lot of dancing around this question, particularly from the Bush administration. It was evildoers. It was terrorists. It was people who hijacked a noble religion whatever you say, don't connect it to religion and specifically don't connect it to Islam, even though all the evidence points to the fact that Al-Qaeda is essentially an Islamist totalitarian movement. The people in the planes on 9-11 had written out wills that told you explicitly that they saw themselves as going to heaven as martyrs in the path of Allah. The whole history of the Islamist movement, as you were noting just a moment ago, it it gets its boost with the Iranian revolution, which is an explicitly Islamic totalitarian phenomenon. And its inspiration radiated out, not only to people, to, to one sect of Islam, which is the Shia sect, which Islam is predominantly, but to the whole of the Muslim world. It was seen as a political intellectual earthquake and it energized a lot of the Islamist groups everywhere. And for for years ongoing, because Iran kept up the, it saw itself as leading a movement and trying to be the standard bearer. So what you have in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 is the natural question to ask is who is the enemy? What do you do about it? And we were arguing, well, you need to think about the ideological character of this enemy. And there's no way around solving the problem you can't solve the problem without taking seriously Iran's role in this movement, and also Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. But Iran is principally the, the chief uh, uh, energizer, financial energizer, and intellectual energizer of this movement. And and you know then, but but more broadly, you'd have to evaluate these other regimes, including Saudi Arabia, as they're hostile to us. They're uh, they're investing millions of dollars and and countless man hours in proselytizing for this basic ideology. None of that was done. And in fact, we were, we were fed, I think, a diet of government propaganda from the Bush administration that don't think about Islam, don't think about any connection here between religion and the, the, the acts that you've seen on American soil. And anyone seriously looking at this would have to scratch their head at minimum. How can you possibly have this view? It doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe I don't understand how it connects. Maybe there's a question about what is the relationship between this movement and and the religion, which is a real question. And you you have to think about how to understand that, but you can't dissociate them. And to do that, I think you have to engage in evasion, which is to, the conscious refusal to see facts, a conscious refusal to integrate facts and understand things that you know are there that you make you uncomfortable, that you don't want to be true. And that was written all over uh, the Bush administration's policies from the very beginning. One of the symptoms of this was the non-recognition or the evasion of Iran's role. Initially, one of the concrete people forget is that uh, Iran was initially invited to join a coalition against terrorism. I think it turned us down or it it didn't work out for some various reasons, but this is is bizarre. This is like inviting the Taliban to join a coalition against Islamism. If you really think Iran belongs there, you don't understand what you're dealing with. Uh, And and there's many other things. I think the, the other notable development was, the prioritization of Afghanistan and Iraq and then basically Iraq swamped the whole focus on the military side of things uh, and then the, the idea that what we need to do here is liberate Iraqis and, and people in Afghanistan and bring them elections now how that and we can talk a bit more about that but if you're thinking about what does this have to do with the fact that people tried to kill Americans by the thousands in New York City and in, in Washington It has no connection and the the stories that you were we we were told you would be right to question them and to think something's not right here this is really fishy
1: yeah and i think part of what you said is key here in terms of thinking of the discrediting of american institutions because they've done much to discredit themselves so it's 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 an earned discrediting. Unfortunately, the danger I think is that you're going to throw, or Americans will throw out the baby with the bathwater. That it's it's, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about sort of the rise of popular uh, populism and tribalism, and it, it's just it's too much. Like let's just get rid of everything. Um, the whatever your latest thing, the Justice Department is corrupt, the FBI is corrupt, Congress is corrupt, the Supreme Court is corrupt. And if you sweep aside uh, and try to put into the garbage can, all American institutions, what the Founding Fathers created, it's what they created is a system of government and a system of checks and balances and so on. And it's an enormous achievement. And the danger is if instead of understanding that many of the institutions, including here, the executive branch has been operating with the wrong ideas, the wrong principles. And what we need is to institute better ideas and better principles, not either sweep it aside or hand almost uh, authoritarian power to the presidency because maybe we'll get someone who can get things done. And so that's the danger. But part of what's happened is the institutions have discredited themselves. And in regard to our foreign policy, I think the the evasion had been going on for 20 plus years, but it was much less obvious to the normal American who doesn't pay that much attention to what happens in the rest of the world, what's going on in the Middle East. And yeah, there would periodically, there'd be attacks and conflicts that we were involved in, and bombing of the Marine barracks and so on, but, that, that, that we were evading what was going on, I don't think was obvious to the kind of general American. After 9-11, an attack on our soil. And as you said, like for anybody it would be obvious that they were animated by a cause and it's a religious cause. And they're, um, they've pledged their loyalty to it. It's a bad cause but you can't understand the phenomenon if you're not thinking in those terms. And it was obvious to the, the, um, a normal American, that's what's happened here. And that you have your whole government bending over backwards. And it wasn't just the Republicans and Bush, in, um, they were joined by the Democrats. And, um, they were, the Republicans led the charge here that don't look at religion, don't think anything is involved. So, the evasion was so now obvious and, and so obvious that it was evading, and obvious it's consequential. That, like, how can you evade the basic issue of who's the enemy that's attacking us? Why are they attacking us? What are they after? What are they trying to achieve? Why well, think Iraq is the source of this? And so, on. and that when it, the evasion is so out in the open for everybody to see, I mean, what can you do more to discredit? The government as an institution, or, our, or here, our foreign policy, as a, as a like, not just that like, you can't ascribe it to that. There's one, if we replace this person, like, there's something really corrupt here. And that's what part of what people saw after 9 11. And even if they can't fully articulate it, they get the sense that, that something is really evasive here. Um, and that starts, I think, really started the discrediting of uh, American political institutions.
0: And I think it's useful to talk a bit, to zoom in a bit with some of the details of what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, because, and I think the point you just made about how, even if people couldn't articulate exactly what they were sensing, it wasn't hard to get some things off here. I don't, it's not, I'm not comfortable with this. And to take some of the details of what happened. So Americans are sent into combat zones American soldiers sent comments on, on the idea that, as the Bush administration said, if unless they get, unless people over there get freedom, we won't be able to protect our own here, which is not true. And in fact, Americans died in order to bring elections to Iraq and Afghanistan, but to what end? And here's, there was another significant fact that if you had any sense that, well, the people in the plains had something to do with Islam, okay. And what they were trying to do is, according to their uh, propaganda, it, they want Islam to rule everywhere. They hate America because it's not pious, it's not religious, it's not Islamic, and it's it, it's a, an affront to Islam in many ways. So, what kind of societies does it should those new new Iraq and new Afghanistan look like? And in both cases, the new constitutions that were drafted with the leadership of American consultants and experts in, in the American military and diplomatic involvement, both of those constitutions put Islam as the foundation of the state. Now, it's not the same. It doesn't look the same as Iran, which is an Islamic theocracy or Saudi Arabia, exactly. But it, it concedes the principle of exactly what the Islamists who flew the planes and others in other factions of the Islamic movement, it concedes the principle that they're fighting for. It's saying, yes, Islam is the appropriate foundation for a society, and every law has to be consonant with that. So what in fact happened is after Islamists flew planes into the twin towers and killed thousands of Americans, American soldiers were sent to the Middle East to help create new governments based on Islam. And then not only did that, was that sort of, you might say, oh, well, this is a detail of the constitution of it, but these were major news events. The, the councils they had to formulate the constitution and the, the, uh, the handover of, of sovereignty to Iraq was a major event at the time. Not only were these things uh, unfolding and there were major news, then what happens is with the elections that American troops are there to help facilitate, and that the Bush administration is celebrating as achievements, who is it that gains ground through elections that we're facilitating? It is, in many places, particularly Iraq, it is Islamist-aligned parties. And not just parties that sort of lean that way or they're a little bit curious about what Islamist ideology looked like. These are parties that had been in exile in Iran under the tutelage of the Iranian regime. And they're aligned with the Iranian regime. And if it wasn't those parties, it was warlords who were already in Iraq. So in effect, the elections that America ushered in under the Bush policy instituted and, and strengthened and in some cases actually brought to power political leaders who were Islamists and who were steps away from the kind of goals that Al Qaeda and other Islamist groups are seeking to effectuate. So it it was really to call it ridiculous is to demean the 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 risk and the lives that were lost in the process of doing this. But you how, do you, how could you, what policy would be more self-destructive in effect, given what had initiated this whole conflict and what led us to, into those two countries? Uh, I think if you wrote this in a story, in a novel, like a spy novel or something, people would, absent this actual historical event, people would say, this is crazy. No one would believe this.
1: Yeah, it was, Yeah, to call it ridiculous, it it downplays the consequences of it. It was perverse because the consequences were so uh, life-negating, both for our soldiers and for the people who had to fight in these wars. And uh, we haven't even talked about the kind of military orders they were under and the crippling conditions that they couldn't really fight and they didn't really know what they're fighting for in the end. And our pullout in Afghanistan is unfortunately a um, fitting capstone to our policy, not to the soldiers and to the people who fought, who I think fought bravely and had confidence that our policymakers knew what they were doing. And they were instituting policies that were actually protect. America, the, the policymakers didn't know what they were doing. It was were talked about, but it's not the soldier's fault, but it's a it's a fitting capstone on our policy. Like That's what it had to lead to, that we would spend years and years and years, no idea what we're doing. And we pull out and it looks what it conveys to people who are fighting for the cause is, for, that is for the cause of Islam and political Islam, you can outlast the Americans. They don't know what they're doing and they are something like a paper tiger, which was their rhetoric before 9-11 and part of what explains their boldness in um, attacking America on US soil. It's a view of it as a paper tiger. And we're, we've the pull out of Afghanistan sends a similar message about America's and it, it's really, it's, it's our political will not our military strength, it's our, It's the failure of our policy. And it, yeah, so it is perverse. And in thinking about this in terms of the institution, so it certainly discredited government. It ends up discrediting the Bush administration, but more broadly our foreign policy. And you put it in the intro of American exceptionalism that we're on the side of the good Um, and that we're a force for the good in the world, it throws that into question. But I think the other two kinds of institutions, it obviously uh, helps discredit is the media because the media went along uh, and particularly what would be called now the mainstream media went along with there's yeah what is the what does this have to do with religion and islam and so, and so the the story of it's hijacking a great religion and every religion is peaceful and so on and anybody who takes up arms in the name of religion is perverting religion so i mean there's his, there's centuries of history to the contrary about religion all of that being evaded and if you think of part of the role of the media is to challenge government and to hold government accountable that did not happen it may have happened at for some more concrete issues about like what exactly are you doing in iraq and so, but from the point of view of does this foreign policy make any sense and as a story we're being told about what led to 9-11 and what how to think about its causes and so on, the media was complacent and echoing the government so and that since it was what the government was doing was so evasive, and that the media goes along that has to discredit the media as well. And then you get a sense, because, again, this is not a issue of months, but of years of this going on, that the media are educated in our universities. And when you see the professors on TV, the ones who are more sort of in the public eye, they all too echoed, this issue about like what is Islam this is your Islamophobic if you think there's any role for Islam in the in in the attacks of 9/11 and how we should think about what a response should be and so on. so the, the the evasion I think again to the average American we, we, he will sense yeah it's be it's not just the government it's the media and it's our higher education institutions and that so for someone to start to think maybe all of this is corrupt, that is deeply unsettling and if you don't know fully how to think about it and what the source of the corruption is and what might be a path out of it and so on, it's easy to think, yeah, let's get a strong man to sweep all of this aside and 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 that uh so so it, it's when we're talking here about the discrediting it of institutions, I think it's important to get the 9-11. It's not just the Bush administration. It's not just sort of the state department and the executive branch of the government. Congress was, was a willing participant in this. So it's more broadly the government, but it's then it's the media and the, our educational system
0: just one anecdote about the educational system. So I, I was giving a lot of talks uh, over the last two decades at various universities on and panels as well on the sort of what's going on in the war, what, how should we think about it better? And it was remarkable how many times there was a lot of friction over the panels I was in or just helping to, to put on. And one of the things that I, I remember, I went to a, an event at UC Davis and there was an attempt to cancel the event that this panel, and the panel was not an attempt to argue a particular position, it was a, it was a range of views on this question, what is the, what's going to happen in the Middle East in the next few years, there was various developments, so-called Arab Spring, and the the sheer fact that the panel had the word Islamism or Islamist in the title, that was all that was needed for this to become Uh, a campus controversy and for students with the support of the professors or at least enacting the ideas they've been taught for several years in academia for them to to try to silence any discussion of this and this this was this was a common place this was you know before people were worried about the free speech crisis on campus in the mid 2010s this was a common feature if you wanted to talk about islam and the the war in in iraq you were Shouted down or, or canceled, for, your event might be canceled or, or protested. The number of events we did were protested merely because we, we pushed on this question of What is the relationship between Islam and the Islamist movement? There has to be something. How do you understand it? And what's the relationship with America's policies here? And just one other anecdote I, I think it's important just to, to uh, season what you were saying, because I think it's useful to get that, as you were saying, there's a whole bunch of institutions that are all doing their best, in effect, to discredit themselves. So there's a lot of evidence to, to, to see that they're not doing what you would expect them to do. All throughout this time, so just keep in mind the time horizon here. So from 2001 to 2011, Osama bin Laden, who is the, the face of the Islamist movement other than the Iranian regime and the head of al-Qaeda, the one behind the operation on 9-11, he's, he's on the run, right? He, he Nobody was able to catch him for 10 years. Eventually in 2011, there's an operation that kills him and he was hiding in a Pakistan. But throughout this period, every so often he would release a video or a cassette tape, an audio track. And it would be commenting on things that are happening in Iraq, commenting on Afghanistan, commenting on American political scene. So he was obviously connected. And every time one of those came out, it was like a slap in the face. So, he, so here's in effect, part of the enemy Issuing more propaganda, and if this got major news attention, uh, naturally, uh, so so throughout this period where Americans were dying in Iraq, and Iraq was going, was spiraling into this chaotic insurgency, with Americans not succeeding at all in in pacifying this. Throughout that period, you you get Osama bin Laden piling on. So I think it heightened the sense that, do we really know what we're doing? How is this even possible? This guy's on the run, and we, we haven't been able to get him. And I think that is, it gives you the sense that you you can't talk about it <laughs> in the US in higher education space. And then at the same time, what you get is Osama bin Laden poking his head off and getting all the publicity he wants, making the point that this is a, an Islamist, this is a jihad in effect. And how how silly you all are for not seeing this. Uh, so, so that's just, if you think about the intellectual political climate you can't really understand it without getting some of the flavor of what was happening at the time uh, here in the U S. So I have a lot more things I want to say, but we should sort of connect this a bit more to, to the issue of institutions. And one important piece we haven't talked about yet is in connection with 9-11 is 9-11 was a it sort of fertilized what was already existing in American political culture, which is this phenomenon of of conspiracy fantasies or what's conventionally called conspiracy theories. So there's things throughout history, who killed JFK, was the moon landing faked? And so all sorts of crazy, crazy things. But 9-11 gave, it's not right to say it gave birth to, but there were people who came along and said, the story you've been told about the way the towers fell, that's all BS. Here's what really happened, and it was an inside job, and it was the government doing it. And, and my point in raising this is not to give credence to any of that, but it's to understand the relationship between 9-11, the climate of evasion that we've been talking about that was sort of reflected in, in, in the government across the board and in different institutions of the government, and then this phenomenon of what they call 9-11 truthism. And so how do you understand the relation between those two, Ankar?
1: Yeah, I think of it as, uh, as you were putting it, that what you got is a mainstreaming of conspiracy fantasies and that that's only possible in a civilized country. It's only possible when you have this massive level of evasion because what these fantasies, um, what they have is in common is here's an explanation for things that seem hard to explain. And it's there's some people in the background manipulating, it's a conspiracy, um, it, it's motivated by people with ill will. And, so and if you don't have an explanation, a good explanation for that you're seeing massive evasion, you're more likely I think to latch on to well, maybe there's something, I don't believe it, everything about this fantasy, but this got to be something like the FBI or the CIA is corrupt in some way. And maybe they didn't literally plan 9-11, but had some role in it. And it's because it is hard to wrap your head around the most powerful country in the world, the most powerful country that has ever existed is attacked. And it's not just... You couldn't dismiss this as a terrorist attack and it, it's uh, five people are taken hostage or something. Like this was a massive attack on US soil um, with 2000 and plus people lost, attack on New York, on Washington. Some of the attack didn't succeed. So the, the, both the buildings destroyed and the lives lost would have been higher if it was fully successful attack. This was a major attack why would the most powerful country in the world evade the, the nature of the enemy not be willing to face It is hard to wrap your head around that. And if you can't and have a what, I mean, at least what we think is the explanation and understanding why they were so reluctant to face the issue of religion. Um, and it's partly because they are religious and want to bring religion into politics and so on and if you thought well there's something wrong with that and there's something with these, these theocratic aspirations and wrong like what do we say about what we're trying to do and we're trying to get abortion banned because our bible says you can't have it and our god says this is like so th- there were real reasons why they were evading the role of islam but it's not easy to get that why they are evading it, but it's easy to see that there's evasion going on. And that's a recipe I think for people to latch on to some explanation is better than no explanation. And that makes, it's fertile ground for conspiracy fantasies. And that's the sense in which I think of them as this was, there was a mainstreaming of them because there was something crying out for an explanation And it's an explanation of something bad going on of this kind of evasion. And it wasn't just as we were talking about at the government level, but with the media and with our educational institutions. And if you don't have an understanding of the role of ideas here, a substitute kind of explanation is some kind, there's some kind of conspiracy in the background that those really in the know can spot and see.
0: In another way, we were talking about this the other day as in preparation for the conversation. The, another way to see what was happening here is, so you mentioned the role of ideas. and If you don't understand them, it's a lot harder to make sense of what's going on. There is a, a group that we haven't talked about enough, I think so far, which is the America's intellectuals and whether they're in academia or outside academia, wherever they are, part of, I think this is Ayn Rand's view essentially is that, part of the role of an intellectual is to be the eyes and ears of a culture, to, to, to explain what's going on, to warn of things coming ahead that should be uh, averted. And just to, to make sense of the world from a, a, a wide angle perspective or a, 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 in the best form, if, if they have philosophical depth, is to provide a, a worldview, sort of a, a wide, wider frame for understanding what's going on. And I, my recollection of this period is there was very quickly a taking of sides. So if, if you, it, there were a lot of people who were supportive of the Bush administration's policies, and including, let's not talk about Islam, including the democracy crusade, the whole package, and they were, uh, so not just politicians were, were nodding along with this, but a lot of intellectuals and commentators and people in the media were pushing this. And, and one of the Issues that I think really sticks in my memory is the assessment of the Iraq war over time. And this I think was a real it's a real example of the, the negligence of the intellectuals in America at the time. Is, there's many other examples, but this one in particular. So the Iraq war, the very beginning of it, we were told by, by the Donald Rumsfeld and then others, this is gonna be fine. There's gonna be a cakewalk. Well, people in Iraq are gonna welcome Americans with 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 flowers and cakes and sweets and so on. None of that happened. I mean, the insurgency began fairly soon after the Americans came in. And the insurgency was driven by Islamists, not only, but they were a major factor in that. And the insurgency claimed a lot of lives. It, it, the chaos that erupted during that period was not only against the Americans, it was also score settling within different clans and, and tribes and so forth. So the, this sort of mounted over time And it got worse and worse. And I think the the lowest point was around 2007, 2008, something around that time. And this was thousands of Americans in harm's way, hundreds of bodies every week are mounting up in in Iraq. And so throughout this period, we get from from various uh, government voices and then people in the culture acting in effect as their surrogates who should know better. It's, well, Iraq is gonna be a success. Well, we're gonna be there a little bit longer. But then mission accomplished. So there's a famous poster of George W. Bush with, on a on a battleship with the uh, words "Mission Accomplished" behind it. That wasn't true the minute he started speaking. Then you get, well, we'll be in Iraq just a little bit longer while they stand up. So we'll help them get up, get get on their feet. And then it was, once they have an election, we'll we'll leave. That'll be a mark of success. When when the elections happen and Islamists take over, it's we'll wait around until we can get them out of power and get better people. And then it's the the you know, the metaphor of uh, the goalposts are being changed all the time. The, it's effectively, that's what it was, that the standard for success was defined down with every new piece of evidence that things were going uh, sideways. And, and Iraq was a disaster, it was a, it was a quagmire. And throughout this time, there were people in a chorus insisting, Iraq is a success. How could you not be in, how could you not see this as a success? Up until about 2008, when the, the strategy completely changed, it was Iraq. We don't want to talk about Iraq. Let's not talk about Iraq. And there's nothing to see here. And then they moved on, and it was not an issue in, in the, uh, sort of the presidential campaign and, and, and the political scene. And that is, a I think, mounting evasions about what was actually going on. And, and then it's just a decision. Well, okay, well, forget it. We're not going to talk about this anymore. It's too costly for us to see. And, and if you're living through that, and you're paying attention, you think, how is this possible? I mean, the, the body counts are going up. The number of IEDs are going up. Americans are coming home in pieces. How is this success? How, why do you think I should be persuaded that this is really success? Uh, so I think, and this, this is like you, you were earlier emphasizing that the blame here is not on the military, the personnel in the military, the soldiers who went in. I agree with that. I think it's really important to stress that the culpability is the Civilian leadership that sets the policy, and then in this case, there's also culpability on the intellectuals' shoulders. But one effect is that the military became discredited. You've been there what seven years now, eight years, and then on and on and on it went. And what have you done? Okay, so you open some hospitals, you change, the, you know, you you help with the sewer system, you open up universities that then get looted. What, what, what good is the military? They can't put down the insurgency. Uh, so I think there's there's this sort of um, reciprocal causal relationship between the, the way this is presented by the mil- by the government and by reinforced by intellectuals, and then people taking away the conclusion that it's not warranted as a conclusion, but it definitely leads to the sense that they don't know what they're doing. We, we can't really solve problems with the military.
1: Yeah, and it makes more plausible this, what we need is someone who's gonna tear down everything. Um, that that's the, the solution and it's not a solution, but it makes it more plausible. And it, that, that's, that that's, these institutions have discredited themselves, but the solution is not tear them all down. The solution is to build them better. And so there are things that need to be eliminated, but it's not, you, you you return to a second or third world existence if you tear down all these institutions. Um, it's part of what is the achievement of America, that we have uh, an American system, which is not the people. It's the, what's created as enduring institutions. And it's really important that they function well. And if they're functioning badly, yeah, they need to be reformed, but not, replaced by strongmen that's that's uh will achieve nothing positive.
0: we talked a lot about 9 11 its ramifications I, i think it's worth talking about one other example of this kind of phenomenon which is the 2008 financial crisis and there are other examples we could talk about but this one was it's very different from 9 11 in what happened it wasn't a foreign threat it was just an economic situation naturally uh, but in, in in important respects, there are other ways in which both what happened in this crisis, what was the cause of it, how to understand it, and in the aftermath and the, the response to both in both of those respects, it has a strong commonality with 9-11 and, and, and sort of the, the effect on the cultures. How do you think of that event, the crisis?
1: Yeah, I think, the, I think of the financial crisis as putting the last major nail into the discrediting of the institution and it's important that it is not experienced as this is some outside external cause it's some people organizing in the Middle East and so who then attacked us it is the result of our policies and what it conveyed to people I think and the whole atmosphere of it is, Again, our institutions don't know what they're doing. And it's important to get the, the before the financial crisis hit, there was a period and a, of kind of euphoria in the US that where it's gonna be, um, the, our economic situation is gonna be great from here on out. You had what will now be called as a housing bubble but it's important that at the time that that's happened, it's more and more, it became almost universal. Everybody's saying, oh no, this can just keep going and housing prices can go up and up. And I mean, I'm sure you knew people who left their jobs to start either flipping houses or to become real estate agents. And so like it was a massive shift to this. And it there were a few voices saying, look, this is not actual economic prosperity and production. It's a result of some bad uh, government policies. But the by far, the, the main view was, yeah, we've hit some kind of period, like the end of history in terms of global conflict. It, it's the end of any kind of, you, we're going to get any kind of financial crisis, anything like a depression and so on. We can just keep doing this forever and it from the housing it went I mean the stock markets booming and so on and then you hit this massive financial crisis starts with the the bust of the housing bubble or the bursting of the housing bubble and I think it's again all three of the institutions government media and the higher education are discredited by this so at the level of higher education, the econ- economist and the profession was right. Like this can't happen. You can't have just at the level of kind of housing and real estate. You can't have um, a collapse across the whole country. Yeah, maybe in a particular region and so on. You, have, but you can't have the and let alone this whole financial crisis. It they it it was not um, on the horizon at all. So, and putting it is a different way, they were completely blind to it. And that people sensed, and there were stories, I mean, in newspapers and so on, uh, and by economy, like, how did we miss it? How could we not see this coming? What's wrong with our profession? So so there's a discrediting at the level of kind of the intellectual policy makers for our economic policies. And then what was conveyed at the government level was panic, I think, and all kinds of decisions that they would, some people would be bailed out and some wouldn't, and it changed from week to week. And again, from a just average American watching this, it just seemed like they have no idea what they're doing and they're gonna bail out their favorites and people with political connections and the other people won't get bailed out and and, Wall Street will get bailed out, but mainstream, Main Street won't get bailed out, so we lose, and the elites are winning. And it, I can understand that reaction to it because what was conveyed at the level of government and the level of intellectual policymakers was, they have no idea what they're doing. They're at like the most uh, kind description is that they were functioning by the seat of their pants, but I think it was worse than that. And then, the media also had no, I mean, they, if you look at the media stories, they too think like we're in a period of unlimited prosperity that has no end. And so, so they're not reporting on, look, there's deep cracks in our foundations. So, so it's a, It. You, so it was another cataclysmic event that it seemed like none of these institutions have any clue about or, and, sort of could see it coming or what to do when it came and that that, there really was a level of panic that was palpable I think and that it's um so it it's now it's not just in our foreign policy and so it's the the rot seems much more widespread than that And and I think if you think of those two together in the way that they have led to a deep suspicion and discrediting of the, the institutions. It's understandable, even though I don't think it's all the analysis all is all correct, that this is what people would experience and they're now looking for an explanation. Is what's not correct is there are explanations for what's wrong with these institutions, but that they would see it as there's something really wrong. That is um, the institutions, I think, have earned that suspicion.
0: One of the narratives that came out of the financial crisis from various places is, well, at least this is how it's remembered now, I, I suppose, the system's rigged against the little guy. And if you're at the top of one of these banks, yeah, you can pull some strings and you'll get bailed out. And even if you're not bailed out, you're going to hobble along, and you're you've got a golden parachute. But the guys at the bottom, and this this is the kind of perspective that gets played on and it this this connects to this issue of, of uh so-called populism and I, and I i say so-called because i i'm as you know we we're talking about this earlier i don't like the term i don't find it very helpful but i think there's something it's trying to capture and and one aspect of it is this idea of an opposition between ordinary regular people the real people the good-hearted people the people who sold to the earth versus the elites, and in some sense the elites here should be put in scare quotes because it's not clear who, who's in that, but they're, they're the ones who are screwing you over. They're the ones who are getting away with things. And this maps on very very well to the last 20 plus years. If you think about 9-11, if you think about the financial crisis, if you think about other things in, in between, there's many others we could point to. And it, it when you think of elites as, well, they're the ones who are educated, the ones who have money, the ones who've done certain things in the last, that creates a category that's certainly not helpful because it, there's it's good to be an elite athlete, right? It's good to be an elite surgeon, but it, it, what are you really trying to capture here? And so I think it it, it really clouds people's thinking, and the result is it, it's a it's a I think it translates, and we think about this in the context of COVID. I think this is all over the way people reacted to COVID on whichever side they stood, because it, it also became highly partisan or, or tribal. The elites that came in to both warranted and unwarranted criticism were people who had scientific knowledge, people who were in the government, whether they had scientific knowledge or not. And this was another, I don't think we need to get into COVID exactly, but there's definitely a lot to say about how COVID is another example where people I think are from, their starting position is already to have a lot of distrust of institutions. And then you get all kinds of BS from the government about what's happening, and particularly under you know, the Trump administration. This is going to go down, it's going to go to zero in a few weeks, there's not a problem, we're on top of it. Anyone can get a test if they want it. None of that was true. And then you get actual failures from the FDA not approving things and the CD and screwing up the first tests and not, not having them out in time. No real preparation, Sort of something that people in this field spend years thinking out and planning out. So all of this is sort of reinforcing the idea that you can't trust those people. Yeah, they're they're educated, they're smart, and everything, but they don't really care about us. And then this it's it's a really toxic way of understanding the world because it creates, I think, artificial friction, artificial conflict, um, and it doesn't it doesn't really explain the failures. So they're real failures, but they're also uh, things that are. Distorted. I'm just curious about your thoughts on this. And again, we—I don't think we want to go over and get into COVID, but there, there's something to say here about that.
1: Yeah, and I think here from what we're talking about, what's important is that you have to see COVID and both what our government and leadership did in regard to COVID, but the reaction to it on the part of the people, you on the uh, on the American public as occurring in the context of 9-11 and the financial crisis. So there's already, and for real reason, deep suspicion and distrust of government, of media, and of our educational institutions. And I think if the response had been a good response, there's still a chance that the American people would have, okay, well, maybe here at least the leadership, the so-called elites have a better idea of what is happening. But when it was so transparent that once again, what is happening is open evasion. I mean, so there would Trump that it's going to go to zero. And if we don't let him off the boat, then it doesn't count in the stats and so. That it was to anybody who's thinking a bit, it's um, there's evasion there, but there was in regard to what happened with the CDC and it's partly they were sidelined, but partly there's political things happening there. So it, I think the a natural reaction was again, that we've got a crisis or at least potential crisis and the response isn't to face it. It's to try to evade um, or to actually evade aspects of it. And that, if it was the first time this happened, okay, but the, in w- this has happened with 9-11, this happened with the financial crisis, so, that people can quickly turn against the so-called elites, but against the leadership and think, um, what you're doing is it's, it's fundamentally wrong. And then again, searching for explanations and grafting on to various conspiracies. and so That, I think, you can understand what happened with COVID if you see it in a vacuum. It's like, oh, there was a pandemic, and look how stupid Americans are. That's not how to think about what happened, um, because the government response to COVID was abysmal, and Americans have had enough of that, um, and would see it as, this is more of the same. And that's, if you're really thinking about COVID, I think you have to think of it in that context to understand what happened in the country.
0: Well, we're, we're at time, and I, I had more things I wanted to talk about, so I, let, let's see if we can tie up some of these threads. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you, you were mentioning earlier what the opportunity could have been to improve the institutions. If Had the response to COVID been better, it would have built some trust or built some respect for key institutions. Just to broaden that a bit, what do you think is the path to move away from this 20 year plus uh, background where there's institutions have done things to discredit themselves as compounding effects, compounding, spiraling uh, consequences that worsen the problem. How do you think, what would it look like to improve the situation?
1: It's one to understand the root of the failures, which are, it's a failure of ideas. It's a failure to, the the fundamental failure is a failure to understand the actual American ideas and ideals about what our system of government is, what it is that America stands for, what freedom means, what rights mean, what it would mean to have a government that is focused on defending freedom and defending rights of its citizens, and then more broadly of thinking of that as animating our foreign policy. And it's that we've drifted away from those ideas and ideals that is the fundamental explanation, I think of America's failure, the failure of its governments, of its policies, whether it's of its foreign policy or of its domestic policy. And the, so the solution is one, to face that failure. It, it, like we, I think we really have to think we failed. We failed to live up to American ideals. And one consequence is an inability to understand what is actually going on in the world. Whether it's to understand the role of political Islam in the Middle East and what has happened in the last 30, 40 years in the Middle East or 40 plus years. And domestically to understand that when you have this massive expansion of government power, uh, it's that's not the original American system. Uh, and it, it creates enormous distortions in the economy that have been playing out at least since the 70s with stagflation. And then there's periods where it gets better but the, our whole, the kind of the amount of economic intervention that exists in the American uh, system now is, I mean, I don't think the founding fathers could have dreamt that it would be something like this. And that creates distortions like something like it produces the financial crisis. And when you look at when the American government gets really power over the financial system, with the creation of the Federal Reserve in the early 20th century and so on. It's the these periodic financial crisis bubbles. They don't get better, they get worse. And I mean, we get the Great Depression and so on and you get something like the 2008 financial crisis. These are consequences of government power and intervention. That has to be recognized. And then you have to then uh, try to find support vote for and so people who think in terms of ideas and so who can diagnose the cause and have at least some things to say about what a uh if they're not a cure at least some ways to make it better like they have some better ideas that we're in a tribal age means nobody thinks in terms of ideas it's just if my gang was in power. Your gang's responsible for everything bad. My gang does everything good. Put my gang into power with no restrictions. And this is get rid of all the institutions, get rid of the checks and balances in government. I want a strong man. And the the election of Trump, one of the, I wrote about this right after the election. One of the disturbing things about it was polls saying, asking the, these were registered voters Um, Do we, it's something like, do we need a, a powerful political figure who will say or do anything in order to, however you want to put it, to get prosperity in America or to reverse course? And it's incredible how high the percentage of people saying either they strongly agree or they somewhat agree, like that's what we need. And that's a symbol of that people aren't thinking in terms of ideas as the cause and ideas as the solution. It's people as the, and it's like the wrong tribe has their hands on political power, and that's not a solution to anything. That's just the destruct, the further destruction of the American system.
0: Well, I think we should draw a line here and invite people to join us next time for the uh, another topic. Uh, and before we close, let's recommend a few resources for people. So we've written a lot about 9-11, the consequences of it. There's an article that's published today in New Ideal uh, that I wrote for a book called Winning the Unwinnable War. The the title is uh, The Road to 9-11. The title of the article as published is Carter, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton paved the road to 9-11, which gives you a flavor of what the theme of that piece is. Part one is out today. The second part will come out on Friday. So I highly recommend you take a look at that. And then another resource we can uh, point you to is a book that Ankar and I edited called Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism. Uh, What went wrong after 9-11? We put a short link uh, on the screen and we'll put it in the show notes as well for people to follow that. You can get the book on Kindle. It's very inexpensive. There's a paperback and you can get the PDF for free if you really wanna access it immediately. And I think we will, I'm going to jump into Clubhouse for a little while to see if I can answer some questions from people. And we've got a few uh, while we were on the air, we didn't get a chance to answer them. Thank you for the super chat donations that you guys uh, offered while we were on the air. We appreciate that. And let me close by encouraging you to share what you're watching, like it, thumbs up, uh, give us your feedback in the comments. We'll, we'd love to see that. Help us spread the word, subscribe to our channel, you know the drill. And as always, we welcome your feedback. You want to write to us our email, newideal at We read everything, try to respond to many. And some of the comments, questions, and suggestions end up being topics for podcasts. We welcome your input. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.
1: You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.